I like to plan things well in advance and in great detail. Now that might come as a surprise to some of you who do know me well, but it's true. In fact, I myself was surprised to learn that in some families, when going on holiday, they haven't actually made out a detailed 11-page PDF itinerary beforehand so that everyone knows the plan, and they don't have a full folder of details prepared on every place they're going to stay with all eventualities covered. I simply don't know how they manage it. But I do acknowledge that the one possible downside of liking to plan things so much is that perhaps one might not cope just so well when the plan doesn't work out quite as is envisaged. That may also be true of me, but I managed to hide it so well that I doubt even my family is aware of that. <laughs> it's probably true for most of us, though. No matter how much of a planner you may or may not be, when your plans don't work out, it's often quite a challenge. This, of course, can range from a minor issue, such as planning to go cycling and finding the weather is less than ideal for it. Now, I'm told this is a minor thing, but I'm not quite sure about that. Or it can be that major, significant plans in our lives go really off the rails. Many of us may have experienced this at some time to a greater or lesser degree. And if you haven't, you probably will at some point. When it happens, it can really hit us hard, can stop us in our tracks and make us question so much. What happens when God's plan goes wrong? What happens when things that take place in this life, in our lives, make us conclude that the only possible answer is that somehow God has got it wrong? Have you ever felt like that? I have. Picking a title of when God's plan goes wrong may be a surefire way of guaranteeing I'm never asked to preach again. Making doubly sure of that could be achieved by trying to preach a sermon on a whole book of the Bible this morning, even though it is a short book. But if you do have your Bibles, could I ask you to turn to the book of Ruth? And we're not going to read the whole book. Uh, we're going to read some verses from the start of chapter 1. And please do keep your Bible open, though, as we go through this morning so we can look at some other verses as we go. And as we do in winter, let's stand for the public reading of God's Word. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judea, in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Please take your seats. <clears throat> We're going to look at our topic using the book of Ruth and primarily the character of Naomi under three headings. It can all go wrong. Blessings may still come. And there may not be answers. So firstly, it can all go wrong. 
Well, this was an ordinary family, a husband, a wife, and two sons, living in Bethlehem in Judah at the time of the judges. And things are hard enough from the start of this story because there was a famine in the land. So the husband makes a decision that to provide for his family, they will move to the neighboring foreign country of Moab. Now, at this point, some writers can criticize and ask, well, was this the right decision? But that's a question and an issue on which, to quote a certain beloved pastor, I'm not going there. Now, living in this foreign country, tragedy strikes the family. Elimelech, the husband and father, dies. Naomi is now a widow in a foreign land with her two sons. Try to put yourself in her position. This is clearly a great loss and must have brought deep sadness to the whole family. Her two sons marry Moabite women. And here's a detail that I'm not sure I really ever noticed before. Ten years pass, and both couples were childless. In that culture, having children, even having large families, would have been the norm. For both to suffer the pain of childlessness was again another deep sorrow. It's hard to think of what comes next, but Naomi's two sons die. It has all gone wrong. I think we can miss the full impact of this as many of us are too familiar with the story and we know the end and what will happen, but forget that for the moment and don't rush ahead. Don't miss the reality of what has happened here. Naomi is a widow in a foreign land And she's just had to bury her two sons. She has no grandchildren. There are no heirs. In that patriarchal culture, there were now no males to provide for and protect her and her daughters-in-law. Not only must she have been overwhelmed with grief, she was now incredibly vulnerable and must have faced despair at the thought of what her future would bring. She believes in God. We can see that as we read the book. She hears that there's food again in Israel, and how does she view it? Look at verse 6. The Lord has come to the aid of his people. When she plans to return to her home country, she urges her daughters-in-law to stay in Moab, and look at her words in verses 8 and 9. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Naomi still believes in her God, but it's not all okay. Naomi is struggling. Look at the last part of verse 13. It is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And this is the reality of believing in God when it all goes wrong. People think that your faith will help you. Here's perhaps a shocking truth. It may not help. It may not seem like that at all. If you believe in an all-powerful, sovereign God who works out his purposes in this world according to his will, then when it all goes wrong, how do you deal with that? It is more bitter, as Naomi says. Has God's hand turned against you? And if you believe in a sovereign, all-powerful God who is good and loving it can be even harder. How can such a God allow such awful things to happen? 
And tragic, awful things do happen. They will happen. They will touch each of us at some point in our lives, if not already. Have you faced the disappointment of your hopes and dreams being crushed as your education or career plans fall apart? As you lose your job, struggle to find another? Have you faced devastating health issues that have irrevocably changed your life forever or that of a loved one? Perhaps a life-changing diagnosis? Have you known the breakdown of a close relationship? The utter heartbreak of being torn from someone you love for whatever reason? Have you faced a meaningless Tragic bereavement that cracks the foundations of your world and threatens the very existence of your faith. In our family, we have known that. The tragic death of a young relative that was and is still incomprehensible, devastating and heartbreaking. And I couldn't reconcile what I knew of my sovereign loving God with what had happened. I shouted at God. I was angry, so angry. Perhaps more angry than I've ever been. God had got it wrong. His plan had gone wrong. I had no idea what he thought he was doing, but it was just wrong. And yes, say such things in church might seem dangerous, but far more dangerous is to brush under the carpet the reality of dealing with intense hurt and great tragedy by offering glib lip service with greeting card-like Christian platitudes. I remember a sincere Christian friend at the time telling me that God was in control and that my faith in him must be a comfort. It wasn't. It seemed as if it would almost be easier to understand if I and accept it if I didn't believe in a sovereign, good, loving God, if it was just the random chance of an impersonal universe. Naomi was bitter, but she still believed in her God. Did it make it easier? It may not have seemed like it did. Unlike a lot of other books and stories in the Bible, there were no dreams, no visitations. No prophecies, no angels, no visions, no words of comfort. She was an ordinary follower of God dealing with extraordinary tragic circumstances. And she wasn't and won't be the last to do so. Why does she still believe? Because God was still God. What option did she have? What was her choice? In John 6, when many are deserting Jesus because of his difficult teaching, he turns to his disciples and asks, you do not want to leave too, do you? And Simon Peter answers for them, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Krish Kandaya, the writer of Paradoxology, has also written an incredibly honest searching book called God is Stranger. Using different characters from the Bible, he explores a lot of the difficult situations in life that we face too. 
He says that as a child, he was given a Bible and a highlighter pen to mark the key verses, the inspiring and helpful verses. And he began to realize that less than 10% of his Bible was highlighted. This is a book, he says, about the bits in between the highlighted verses. And his chapter on Naomi was the springboard for a lot of my thoughts and preparation. He writes, The disparity we so often see between the promise of God's presence and his apparent absence, his past provision and his current withholding, is a difficult no man's land for faith. And sometimes when it comes down to it, when it all goes wrong, this difficult no man's land is where we find ourselves. We can't explain it. We can't understand it. We can't help but think it has all been a big mistake. But yet God is still God. And to whom else will we go? Let's pick up the story again in verse 16 of chapter 1. Naomi has urged her daughters-in-law to go home to their families, and one of them, Orpah, does just that. But Ruth refuses. Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her. She stopped urging her. These are well-loved verses by many, and rightly so. These are verses for your highlighter pen. What a pledge of caring love and devotion, not only to Naomi, but to the God that she still barely just about believed in. Now, maybe I'm reading too much into the text, but as I read those verses, I see Ruth making this great pledge, and how does Naomi react? She stops urging her to return. It's, it's like she shrugs. Okay, if you want to, but don't say I didn't warn you. And then when Naomi does return home, look at how she responds to her people in verse 20 onwards. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Yes, she still believes in a sovereign God, but in a bitter, perhaps almost resentful way, to the extent that what has happened is now defining her. Naomi means pleasant one. She no longer sees herself as the same person. And this is the challenge when we face life-changing tragedy. Is that going to define the rest of our lives? Yes, it's naive to think that deep-seated, heartbreaking loss is something we can easily move past. It's wrong to think it's something you can get over before too long. But the danger is that we never look beyond what has happened. And we may miss the good things that do still remain in our lives. And new blessings that may yet come. And we may miss what God is doing in our lives. We may even wonder, where is God? 
which Kandiah writes. But perhaps the strangest thing is that throughout this entire book of the Bible, God seems completely absent. But was he? At the end of chapter 1, we read that it just so happened that they returned at the time of the barley harvest. Just a little coincidence, that's all. In chapter 2, I get the impression that Naomi is still stuck in a difficult place, but her daughter-in-law Ruth takes the initiative and decides to go and glean in the fields to provide for them both. Fortunate then that it was harvest time. And in verse 3, as it turned out, or you could say again, it just so happened, that of all the fields you could have chosen, by random chance, it was that of a man called Boaz. And we see that he's a godly man who cares not only for his employees, but shows kindness to Ruth and provides her and protects her and even lets her join in with the workers' lunch. And in verse 20, when Ruth returns to Naomi, she finds out that just by chance, this man whose field she was gleaning in was a close relative of Naomi. And in verse 22, Naomi acknowledges that this is a good thing and that Ruth should continue to glean there. Perhaps this is the first stirring of the reawakening of Naomi. The first realization that there may still be blessings to come in her life. Did she still feel pain and loss? Undoubtedly. But she is able to lift her eyes at least at times beyond it and see some kind of future. The start of chapter 3, this continues. She also starts to think of others by showing concern for Ruth's future too. Ruth needs a man, and who better than Boaz, who we've been told is a kinsman redeemer or guardian redeemer. This is a concept in the law of Israel that a close relative can redeem or preserve the family line for a relative who has been widowed or the like. There's clearly a lot of cultural ritual described in this chapter that may seem strange to us but to cut a long story short Naomi tells Ruth how to appropriately make it clear to Boaz that she would be receptive to an honorable proposal let's say and it just so happened that Boaz was very receptive to the idea too there's a little bit of legality to overcome as there was apparently a closer relative who was to get first refusal so to speak but Boaz sorts that out, and the way is made clear for he and Ruth to marry. In chapter 4, verse 13, Ruth, who had previously been childless for 10 years, conceives and gives birth to a son, Obed. Naomi has a grandson, sort of, at last. Verse 14 is a beautiful blessing. Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Naomi, who thought her life was full of nothing but bitterness, who thought she was only to receive affliction and misfortune at the hand of God, has somehow now, as it happened, been brought into a new family. With a loving daughter-in-law, with a 
let's call him step-son-in-law and a new step-grandson. And she took Obed in her arms and cared for him like all good grannies do. When we face the darkest times, when it has all gone wrong, it will seem that there will never again be light. It will seem as if we will never know happiness or blessing again. We may be bitter and empty, and we may just about cling on to our belief in God by our fingernails, but keep clinging on. Because while we do that, there may be a number of it just so happens, or as it turned out, that we may not even realize at the time. And perhaps as we cling on to our God, we may realize that yes, although we still have a deep pain or a challenge to face, there are still good things in our lives. And there are still other people in our lives that we can input into and be a source of blessing and help to, as Naomi was to Ruth. There may not be answers. Again, we're at risk of rushing ahead to the end of the story because we know what comes after Obed. But think about this. Naomi's story ends halfway through verse 17 in chapter 4. She has baby Obed in her family, and yes, that is wonderful. We don't know what age Naomi is, but it's probably safe to say that I don't think Naomi would have seen the next generation that came after Obed. So as far as she is concerned, this is the end of her story in this life. Yes, she is known blessing. Yes, to a degree, things have worked out. Does that eradicate her pain and suffering? Does that explain to her the affliction she suffered at the hand of the Lord as she described it? Does that make everything okay? Can she reconcile it all? No. The pain remains to some degree. The inability to understand why it happened will still be there. There may not be answers. Certainly, perhaps not in this life. And in a way, it can almost be liberating to realize this. Because the fruitless search to trying to make it all add up and explain it can weary us and weigh us down. It is hard, but there may not be answers, yet God is still God. A recent tweet from Tim Keller struck a chord with me as I was preparing for today. When Jesus is all you have left, you realize Jesus is what you ultimately need. Now, I may be about to indulge in some fanciful, whimsical speculation that has little grounding in a proper, true understanding of the theology of eternity. And I know this may be a departure from what is usual for me, but bear with me and humor me. Naomi gets to stand before her God in heaven and undoubtedly praised his name. Now, can you imagine if she is able to see what happens to her descendants? And yes, I know this is a stretch, and who knows how timelines of this life and eternity intersect, if at all, but indulge me. Her little Obed, that wonderful step-grandson, grows up into a man. We don't know how many children he had, but we know he had at least one son 
Jesse. Imagine then Naomi seeing Jesse grow up and having eight sons. Her family line has been restored and expanded beyond what she might have dreamed of. But then one day, to see that the prophet of God, Samuel, came to her step-great-grandson's house, Jesse, and asked to have Jesse's sons presented to him. And can you imagine her mouth falling open when this man of God anoints little David, her step-great-great-grandson, king over Israel? And not just any king, but perhaps the greatest king Israel would ever have, a man after God's own heart. And to see the penny drop, that all the coincidences, all the it-just-so-happens, all the as-it-turned-outs have culminated in her redeemed, restored family line being the line of kings for Israel. And I pictured her worshipping God and praising him for how incredible and humbling this was, how she understood that God's hand was working through all things for good. And perhaps God smiled on her and said, Just wait. Keep watching, Naomi. And it would be a thousand years before another descendant of Naomi's restored family line would return to her old home place of Bethlehem. And with him was the woman pledged to marry him who was heavily pregnant. And the poor girl had to give birth in a stable. And I wonder if Naomi noticed all the angels suddenly queuing up to leave heaven. Where are they going? At first, one appeared in the night sky outside Bethlehem, speaking to a group of ordinary shepherds. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And Naomi's jaw might have hit the floor. Because even when she thought she understood the working of God's plan, she realized she hadn't had a notion. His ways were higher than her ways. His thoughts so much higher than her thoughts. She realized that she had been part of one of the turning points in all human history at a dusty, lonely border between Moab and Israel when a foreign daughter-in-law pledges herself to her grieving, hurting, bitter mother-in-law and pledges to follow the God that Naomi still barely believed in at that point. I have no doubt that when we stand before God and worship him in heaven, we will have so much of a greater understanding. Yet our role in God working out his plans clearly may not be as dramatic as Naomi's. And indeed, there may not be the full answers that explains everything. But when we stand before God and worship him fully in all perfection, that may be answer enough. As we finish, I know there are undoubtedly people here who are in Naomi's place. Things have gone wrong. It may all have gone wrong. 
And it seems like God has got it wrong. His plan has gone belly up. You're not alone. You're not the first to walk this path. There may not be many words to bring comfort at this time. You may be hurting and angry. And it may seem like an impossible ask to keep believing in the God who has brought affliction. And Daya says, those who are willing to wrestle honestly with doubt, despair, and the dissonance between what God promises and what God delivers are not those with the least faith, but those with the most. Those who are unwilling to just let things slide with God, but rather seek to resolve them, show how important God is to them. And look around for the Ruths in your life who may be a source of blessing to you or who may need help with their plans because whilst the pain will remain, blessings may still come. And though there may not be answers in this life or even the next, there will come a time when we stand before a higher throne, made faultless through the Lamb. There we'll find our home and he'll wipe each tear-stained eye as thirst and hunger die. And we will hear heaven's voices sing, just like the shepherds did. And we will sing with them praise to our unfathomable, incomprehensible, yet sovereign, loving God.